Here we are, episode 109 of the Ruthiology Podcast. Dan is back with us. Janelle, are we happy to have Dan back? Yes, we are. Now, Dan's with us all the time because he edits the podcast. He's but he had the a, best. He and his wife had a baby five months ago. She's so. adorable. She's, she's beautiful. Go follow Dan on Instagram and you'll see pictures. But it's good to have Dan back in the flesh. So I'm curious, Dan, for the listeners, uh, what's it like being a daddy? Oh, I really like it. It's not as bad as I thought it would be. Actually, I didn't think it was going to be bad. That's a lie. <laughs> it's great. It's great. I haven't had good sleep in a week, but it's okay. Nah. Yeah. Well, needless to say, uh, Dan, hopefully you'll be joining us more in 2019. This is our last podcast recording of this year, 2018. We're here tonight with Ishmael Akabulut, uh, president of the Multicultural Mosaic Foundation here in Colorado. And we had him at the pub last week at Grandma's house. It was a good time. Uh, so we're going to get to that in a little bit. Just a couple announcements to get you going. Since this is our last podcast of this year, we're going to take a little bit of a holiday break. And then we'll be back probably mid-January. I believe that Pam Eisenbaum is coming back for the first episode awesome. in January. Followed with, I believe, Dan, what's the topic you're going to be doing after that? To be determined. Ooh, Ooh. See, the suspense is killing everybody. And then Mark George is coming back again. We just had him a couple months ago. And if you, if you like what you're listening to, which you should if you're listening to us, then just go to iTunes, rate it, review it, share it online. We're at Instagram and Facebook, at Brew Theology, Brew underscore Theology on Twitter. And yeah, doing the rating and reviewing on iTunes, for whatever reason, that, that does get more listeners. So again, just, just you know, takes you five minutes out of the day, maybe five minutes, three minutes, five-star rating, and then there you have it. All things you need to know are on brewtheology.org. If you want to partner and sponsor with us, we've got 10 chapters across the country. Tallahassee just started. Longmont just started. Yeah. And somebody from Ocean County just messaged us today. Yep. So hopefully we'll Where's have that Ocean one going County? too. California. Okay. Yep. Exciting stuff. So tonight we are talking about the myths and truths about Islam. And I think that uh, we'll probably, if you listen to the talk on Facebook Live uh, about a week or so ago on the Brew Theology page, um, we'll probably talk about some of those things. But we, we also, since this is conversational flow, we'll talk about things that we didn't talk about that night. And yeah, it's good to have you on the podcast, Ishmael. Thanks for having me yeah. here. Thank you. So a quick bio here, and then we'll get to like more personal stuff. So Ishmael is the president, like I said, of the Multicultural Mosaic Foundation. He was born and raised in Germany. That'll be fun. We might go on a little rabbit trail on that one. And his parents immigrated in the 70s from Turkey to Germany. Um, he received his BA from the State University of, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Baden-Württemberg. Baden-Württemberg. There you go. I told you. I'm a Texan. What can you say? It was so off. It, it was really. Yeah. But if you say it loud and proud without asking if you're saying it right, maybe I should have just kept going. It wasn't and, bad. And you would have been polite. <laughs> but he got a degree in uh, business. And in 2007, Ishmael moved with his family to Colorado. And then the same year, he joined the Multicultural Mosaic Foundation as a board member. And since 2009, he has uh, served uh, on the board and he's given uh, many lectures on Islam and Turkey at various organizations and institutions. He also wrote several, several opinion articles for the Armenian Mirror Spectator, the Intermountain Jewish News, and The Circle. So there's a lot more here because you got to like put all your bio in you know, like a paragraph or whatnot. Um, so we just want to, first off, thank you. And uh, thank you for sharing all of your good stuff at the pub last week. But on a more personal note, what was it like living in Europe? Living in Europe was nice. 
Um, I cannot complain about my life in Europe, but it was different. Um, it was not a lot different than the United States, since it's a Western um, country, Germany. However, um, in terms of the attitudes, the culture, um, it was different than living here in Colorado. We have been living here in Colorado for about um, 12 years now. Um, in Germany, I was born and raised, so for about 26, 20, 27 years, um, we lived in Germany with my wife and we um, had one child. Um, in terms of, I can give you a few examples if you would like about what it was, what it meant to, for me to be a Muslim in Germany compared to the United States. As you may know, there is a sizable Turkish community back in Germany. In the 1960s, 70s, there was a lack of labor in Germany. And Germany invited guest workers, so-called guest workers from around Europe to come to um, Germany and to work there. So first they started with Spain, Portugal, Italy, Greece, former Yugoslavia, and then finally Turkey. And about a million so-called guest workers emigrated to Germany at that time and started working there. And the expectation of the German government was that they will be working, making money, and returning back to Turkey. The expectation on the Turkish side was similar. So the families wanted to make money and return back to Turkey. It didn't work out. They stayed. My grandparents stayed in Germany. My parents stayed in Germany, and um, I was born there. Um, in Germany, the Turkish community is within the minorities, the major majority. So as a Muslim, I was majority in the minority. Um, so the way you live your religion is basically the mainstream understanding of the religion in that country. Um, and the Turkish understanding of Islam is very Sufi-inspired. It is very mystical. Um, there is music, there is art. Um, when you go into a mosque, you see a lot of art, a lot of colors. Um, so that was the understanding of Islam that we had um, back in Germany. When we moved out here, it was a shock to me as well, um, because um, I became the minority within the minority, um, because the Turkish community in the United States is um, very little, and there is not many Muslims from Turkey in the United States. So the first time when I went into a mosque, it was a, it was a culture shock, because the mosques here are plain. You don't see any colors. You don't see much art. Um, um, there is not much appreciation for um, the Sufi um, background. So it was different for me to understand where the Middle East was coming from, their understanding of Islam. Yeah, uh, my one of my best friends lives in Germany, and he always just raves about Oktoberfest, but that's probably another animal for another night, another day. And, uh, but so, I mean, you had said, so there's like 1.6 to 1.7 billion Muslims worldwide. And I think that stat grew from a couple years ago. I mean, so this is still a, one of the fastest, if not the fastest growing religion, but yet here in the States and specifically in Colorado, how many did you say there are here? I mean, we don't know the exact number, yeah. but there is a guess between 80 and 100,000 Muslims live in Colorado. Okay. Yeah, that was that was a shocking stat last week when I heard that. I'm like, come again? Cause I, I just, I just assume it would be more for, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Our metro, right. it seems like there would be more. And are most of them in the city here? or Most of them are in Aurora and Metro Denver. Okay. Um, so, some are in Boulder, um, some in um, Colorado Springs and in Fort Collins. Yeah. And how many mosques are there in Denver? In Colorado, there's about 20 mosques, okay. and most of them are in the Metro Denver area. Uh, so last week, uh, the myths and truths about Islam, you talked about everything from Mohammed to Jihad, the difference between the Sunni and Shia. 
Sharia law, Sufism, which you've already mentioned once, women in Islam, and I mean, so many things. Uh, I, I love that you start off with the definition, though, as uh, salam, which in the in the Jewish Hebrew is sh- the shalom, which is peace, and that is the word for Islam, that in submission. And so I think it's, it's a helpful reminder, as a lot of our listeners probably are not Muslim, a lot of them grew up Christian and are probably going, I don't know much about Islam, and I probably have heard a lot from the news, and there's some myths and misconceptions um, that we'll, we can clear up. I also want to just steer people back to that Facebook Live video. If you're on Facebook... But people like Dan out there, they're not, they're not on Facebook. We probably should get back to some of these. Um, I think you can still see it, even if you don't have a Facebook. Oh, you don't need a Facebook yeah. uh, profile or anything? Yeah, okay. I'm pretty sure. That's cool. Don't quote me on that. Try it. See what happens. <laughs> <laughs> but I would love to start the evening just by talking about God, since this is the Bruce Theology Podcast. Um, we, you know, Last week, we didn't have too much time talking about that. I know that there are the five pillars, which I, what I would love to do, if this is okay, to go down all five and then stop at each one and ask you more personal questions, if that's okay too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. All right, great. So first off, the declaration of faith, which is um, if and you you could say you can even say it in Arabic. I can say it. Yeah. Yeah. Allah What means there is no God but God, and Muhammad is his prophet and his messenger. Servant and his messenger, sorry. Yeah. So what is what is Allah like? There is, in the Christian tradition, we have God. There's the Jewish Adonai, another 70-something names. But there's, there's when we start talking about theology, we, we define terms. And we, you know, sometimes it's like super nerdy and people are lost. But, I mean, how, how, would, how would you define God? What's, what's Allah to you? Yeah. First of all, Allah is the name of God. Um, so it means the God in Arabic. Um, when Christians, Arab Christians, refer to God, they say Allah as well. It is not something invented by the Muslims. Um, it is in the Arab language to refer to God. They call God Allah. Besides that, for um, the Muslims, Allah is the Creator, and He wasn't created. He was. He always existed. He is all-knowing, and He is. Um, powerful, all-powerful, and um, he is the most compassionate, the most loving, um, and he is perfect. Um, he is the perfect being, um, and um, he is. He has attributes in Islam, and in the Quran, we believe there is ninety-nine beautiful names, and the ninety-nine beautiful names are basically the attributes of God: the most compassionate, the most loving, um, the the most just, and so on. And um, that's how we understand, that's how I understand God. Um, And God, when he created, he created out of love. For instance, there is a saying in Islam, um, when people ask, what is the purpose of the creation? Why did God create us? Um, There is a saying of the prophet about God, that God said about himself. He said, I was a secret treasure, and I created the world, the human beings, so that they get to know me to show the world who I am. So basically, God is an artist, if you will, and he wanted to show his art to humanity, to understand him. So essentially, these are very conventional, sort of classic theistic elements that we would all say, we, you know, Janelle and Dan and I, we could say, we grew up with a lot of these definitions mm-hmm. too. Maybe Jewish people would define God differently. I mean, but are there any particulars you would say this is definitely a distinction between Christianity and Judaism? Um, between Christianity, yes. For instance, we 
Islam is strictly monotheistic. So we believe that God is um, unique and one, and um, there is nothing um, that is similar to God. We have attributes of God, but there is nothing similar. For instance, Jesus, for Muslims, is a human being. He's a prophet sent by God to the, uh, humanity, but he is not divine. We don't believe that anything other than God can be divine. Only God is divine. Um, between Judaism and Islam, I think it's very similar, the understanding of God. Um, but scholars say one difference might be, or one thing that in Islam is emphasized is the love of God. Yes, there is a lot of rules and orders, commandments in Islam, but there is an aspect of love, like in Christianity, um, of God as well. There's a, um, there were a missionary couple that were um, captured by militants back in the 90s. And the premise, or one of the themes in her book, is that there is no word for love in Islam. Can you... Uh, combat that for us yes absolutely i mean um there is love of course of course of god um the reason why god created was love and um, without love um, there, there wouldn't be any existence and um, in the quran you can um you can read um about compassion and mercy and for instance you can read about the love of parents to their children and so on mm. um so um, the understanding that Islam is, there's nothing about love in Islam, is very tribal. It comes oh, okay. pro probably from those cultures um, in that regions, but it, it's not related to the religion itself. There is a lot of aspects. For instance, I mentioned Sufism. Um, many Sufi scholars, um, they write about um, their longing to God, their love to God. And um, for instance, Rumi was mentioned in our um, discussion at... Um, um, grandma's grandma's home house well home what was it grandma's house grandma's house sorry <laughs> so um so rumi was mentioned there and rumi said my death my passing is going to be my marriage with god i'm going to be united with god so it is about love so christians seem to do a lot of theological gymnastics with the trinity yeah mm -hmm. and they don't want to admit that <laughs> I'll so, admit it, but it's fun. Yeah, it is. Like, yeah, that's a little polytheistic there. Okay, go ahead. I have a question. I think it's related to, to what we've talked about so far. Um, as you know, Christianity is, at least in the beginning, was a, a branch of Judaism and perhaps a reform movement within Judaism and then became its own religion. Is Islam similar to, what was, it, what was its relationship to Judaism and Christianity at its, you know, origin? It's a great question. Um, so Muslims understand Islam not as a new religion. Islam is the continuation of the, of the Abrahamic faith traditions, Christian, uh, Judea, Judaism and Christianity. However, um, I learned that for many Christians, they had to be first Jewish to become Christian in the early ages of, of the religion. Um, However, in Islam, something like that did not exist. Um, the Prof Prophet Muhammad preached the religion of Islam, and people just converted to the religion. There was no step between becoming Christian or Jewish and then Muslim or so. Um, we believe that Prophet Muhammad came to um, humanity, was sent to humanity to reaffirm the original message, to reestablish the or original message, what got corrupt, what got corrupted by human beings, and he just came um, to reaffirm that, and people just converted to Islam. Um, there was no um, limbo, 
state or so between Islam and um, before Islam. Which has to be nice. I think about the early Christians and those who were forced to get circumcised, and they're like, oh man, I got to do this before Paul's like, no, 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 it's okay, you know? So it's kind of nice, just saying, on a practical note, as a male. Yeah. <laughs> That's going to get cut out. I want to circumcise that part. Cut, cut that. I'm just being practical, Dan. Okay? And I think, I think religion is have to, has to be a little practical, which we're going to get to later on. But by the way, uh, circumcision exists in Islam too. Yeah. But it's not mandatory. See, there you go. Not mandatory. It's mandatory. Yeah. It's not mandatory. Yeah. So how did... Uh, I mean, you, you, you came to faith through, through your parents, but I don't know if it's any different from those of us around here, there's that coming to faith because it's your faith. And then there's a, almost that second coming to faith. Did you have an experience where you, you fell in love with Allah, you, you fell in love with the teachings of Muhammad, or was it something that was just passed down to you and that's all you've ever known? Yes. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's a great question for, um, actually, as you mentioned, my parents are Muslims and um, I was raised as a Muslim. However, in my youth, um, I started questioning. I had doubts. Um, so I went to my father and I said, um, how was the Quran written? Um, it was written by human beings, so there might, might be mistakes in that book, um, and so on. So I questioned and I challenged my father. Um, I challenged other people, other Muslims. Um, and then I, got, I started searching for the answers. And um, I, I found one scholar back in Germany um, on the internet. And, and he, we emailed back and forth. And he gave me very reasonable answers. He gave me answers that made sense to me and that um, opened my heart again back to Islam. Because I had a lot of um, deep doubts about how the religion started, how um, the Prophet Muhammad preached the religion, and how the Quran was written. Was it truly the Word of God and so on? But I received very reasonable um, answers that made sense to me, and um, I found my religion again in my youth. Yeah, that's, I think that's, that's good, because I, I mean, so, so many of us, right, we come from a religion and it grows stale, and then often people just leave it all together. The fact that you came back and it, you made it your own, it's, that's a beautiful story. Now, uh, the second pillar, we're on number two. We could talk all night about these. The prescribed prayers, which you had mentioned at Grandma's house. There are five, and I, I can't imagine what it would be like to be that disciplined. I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat disciplined, but five prayers a day. What do those prayers look like specifically? And are they different in the morning versus the evening and, and so on? Yes. So five times prayer, early in the morning, around noontime, afternoon, evening and late night um, and it goes according to the state of the sun um, so each prayer in terms of the units you bow down um, in front of God you submit yourself to God the units are the number of units is different so the morning prayer there is two prescribed units and two um, that the prophet added so it's four total um, noontime is um, four mandatory and then or that the prophet added, and two at two, so ten. Afternoon is eight, four mandatory, and four by the prophet. Evening is five and three, five mandatory, two by the prophet. And um, late night is four, four, two, three. So the the longest one is actually the one late night. So it goes. Uh, scholars say it's go, it goes actually um, in the other direction opposite direction of your um, patience and your um, <laughs> yeah. concentration. 
um, and it, and they say it is actually um, intended. It's not a coincidence that it went that way. And um, Muslims have to memorize verses from the Quran um, to recite in Arabic during um, the prayers, during the prescribed prayers. Um, and there is an order for that um, that you have to follow. So you have to memorize a lot and you have to follow um, this, this order. Um, besides that, you know, you have probably seen in TV how we pray, we bow down. And uh, the, the most striking thing to me, the most interesting thing to me when I learned about the prayer, about my prayer, is God says um, the moment you are cl the closest to Him is when you are with your forehead on the ground. When you submit yourself to, the gr to Him, that's the closest moment you can get to God. And at that moment, your heart is actually on top of your brain. So symbolically, that has a strong meaning, um, that your heart is over your brain, over your head, and, um, and you're submitting to God, and you are at the closest point that you can get to God. I, I respect that deeply. That's, man, I mean, yeah, it's, and you, you had even said, too, like the, the religious practices are, they're a part of, it's a part of your daily life. And mm -hmm. it, that does remind me of Judaism, whereas Christians have somehow just mostly, not all, made it a Sunday exercise or a Wednesday yeah. prayer group. But um, I, I do like that. I don't know if I would be that disciplined, but that's, that's a good thing. <laughs> How does this work, like, at work or if you're out in the evening for an event? Um, like on just, a podcast till late yeah. night. <laughs> how do you just, how do you weave that in and what does that look like? Yeah, so... Um, the, the early morning prayer is not a problem. You do that at home. Um, it's right, right around 5.30 a.m. or so, 6 a.m. You pray that. Um, then, and by the way, there is a time window when you have to pray. It is not noontime pray in five minutes or so. It, um, it's between, let's say, 11.30 to 2.30 or so. It's the noontime oh, prayer. So you have a snooze button. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, at work, what I can do is, what I do is, we have a quiet room. So I go into that quiet room and I pray um, the noontime prayer and the afternoon prayer in that um, quiet room. Um, however, there is in Islam also a permission. If you are traveling or if you are not able to pray at that time, you can combine two prayers. So you can combine the noontime prayer and the afternoon prayer. You can combine the evening prayer and the late night prayer. However, if you cannot make it, you have to make it later. So th there is no excuse not to pray. You have to pray. It is, it is your um, um, duty. So when you're describing the units per prayer um, appointment or, or session, I don't know how to refer to it. <laughs> session sounds so informal. Yeah. But um, is, there, is there like any kind of, I'm trying to think if there's like numerology behind it, like in the significance mm -hmm. of the, of the numbers themselves, like eight and four and two and or three. And <laughs> there might be, I don't, I, I'm not sure. I mean, the, the, in, I think in every religion, there's like secret numbers and so on. Um, some of that goes by probably back to the, um, the culture and to the language itself. Um, in the Arab culture, the number seven is, um, there's an emphasis on seven, so you can see the number seven also appearing a lot in um, the religion of Islam, or the number 40 um, appears as well. Um, I don't know about the deeper meaning of, of these numbers, but there might be, you're right. So the third pillar is fasting during Ramadan, sunrise to sunset, 
oh, this is this is this would be hard for me. I like to eat during the day, and and I'm sure that this goes back to um, if you're not eating, then you're you have to draw your attention, your focus, your submission back to Allah. Is this right? So what what is the purpose behind this month of Ramadan, fasting from sun, sunrise to sunset? What do you get out of it? I mean, there is not just one purpose. Um, one is, of course, discipline, um, to get that discipline in. Um, but the first reason why we fast is because God commanded us that to do that. And in the Quran, God says, um, the reward for fasting you will receive directly from me in the hereafter. So we don't know what the, the reward is going to be, but God promises us a reward for that. Besides that, the other purpose of that is to create empathy and solidarity with people who are less fortunate. Um, because there is not much time in our lives where we can sit down and try to understand how hungry people feel. But in this moment, we can experience it. I mean, we experience how hungry people feel. And it is, on top of that, we have our um, fridge full of food, right? We are preparing food, but at the same time, we have to have the strength to keep us away from the food and to submit ourselves even uh, more to God. And um, besides that, during the month of Ramadan, it is highly recommended um, by God to give um, to needy people. Um, not just food, but to help them. Because we believe during the month of Ramadan, if you give to needy people, um, the good deed is going to be multiplied. Um, because it is the month, the holiest month for Muslims. Um, the 29 or 30 days are the most holy um, days um, of the calendar year. Does that change year to year based on the lunar calendar? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so um, that is similar and a bit different than in, uh, compared to Judaism. The Muslim calendar, the Islamic calendar, moves every year about 10 days. It's a lunar calendar. Um, so Ramadan is right now in summer, but in some years it's going to be in wintertime. And um, so around the world, Muslims experience Ramadan um, during different seasons. Um, so right, this time is actually the, the hardest because... Um, the sundown is very late. Uh, you have to fast um, uh, long, hour, long hours. But um, in a few years, it's going to be less. Yeah, I was going to say, I'd rather it be right now in December, <laughs> not in June, July. I, I really like that emphasis on that the fasting is not simply uh, taking away from self, but it's, it's for a purpose. Uh, the, yes, the submission to God, but also the, the pouring back to those in need. And I feel like that's something that gets lost in, uh, the, in many of the Christian traditions, um, during our fasting periods of Lent where it's so focused on me. And again, this is in the West, in the U S it's focused on me and it's like, Oh, well, and some people don't even give up eating at all. It's just, I'm going to give up chocolate. You know, it's, it's very small. And then it's, it's all about me and chosen mm -hmm. and it's chosen. Yeah. I mean, and along those lines, the first thing that you had said is that this is first and foremost about because it's written in the Quran. Allah says we're submitting to him. This is in our Western, very like postmodern kind of culture that we're living in now. It is all about me. And so like, what, what is in it for me? Mm -hmm. And this is, you had, you had said initially what most Christians have forgotten is that, well, we do it because that's what it says. Yeah. Yeah. And, and on top of that, Islam, uh, Ramadan is about the community. Um, it's not about the individual, it's about the community because 
every almost every evening there is a gathering either you are invited or friends invite you you get together and you you break the fast together um, and you get to know new people it is a tradition that you invite your neighbors people you don't know perhaps and then you invite them you eat with them you break uh, bread with with them and and you create community you create um, solidarity within the community as well by doing that yeah, I don't, I don't know about you, Dan and Janelle, but when we would do fasting events with our, our church back in the day, it did actually bring us closer together as a community. I don't know if y'all had the same experience. Whereas if you just do it by yourself, it's just awful. In some sense, it, but it was it was more complaining yes, together. Yes, I was just going to say that. <laughs> like, Absolutely. Ah, aren't you so hungry? Yeah, I'm hungry. This sucks. Why do I have to do this? Again, but I was Can we just like I mean, go, go press some juice at Whole Foods? And get, you know, does that count? <laughs> What um what are the uh, allowances for people with medical issues? Because I have migraines, and so if I did not eat all day, that would be the a terrible month. So how how does that play out in the community and in people's lives? Yeah, only people who are healthy, um, physically and mentally, have to fast. Children, um, breastfeeding women. Um, Women who are sick or so, um, they don't have to fast. Or elderly people, they don't have to fast. Um, it's only physically and mentally healthy um, adults have to fast. So with, then moving on, would, would that what you just said apply to all, all of these? I mean, for instance, the next one, number four, is almsgiving. in mm-hmm. 2.5%, and that goes toward, I, I don't know, you, I mean, you can tell us, I don't know what it goes towards. And then what, what's happening when there's that giving? And if somebody can't give and if others can give... Mm-hmm even you know, 10, 20%. Yes. Yep. So as you can see, it is 2.5% alms of your wealth. It is not 2.5% of your income. Wealth means you collect your money the entire year. And then if you have um, some, I mean, if you have money after, um, at the end of that year, you give 2.5% of that money. Um, so it's basically luxury. If you have collected money, then you give. But if you spend all your money, and you don't have anything left, you don't give any alms. You don't have to give any alms. Um, traditionally, if you live in a country that is a majority Muslim country, some governments actually collect that money. You can give that money to the government, and the government can provide it to needy people in the community. However, in the United States, there is no government that collects Islamic um, um, alms. So it's between you and God. You can, you can give it as a charity to charity organizations. Um, you don't have to give it to Muslims. You can give it to anybody any needy people. You can, give, you can even give it to education. Um, there, there is categorization, actually, that Islamic scholars came up with where you can, can, where you can donate your money to. So, for instance, you can give your money to a, a school, and, and that would count as um, alms, 2.5% alms. If you want to give more, you can give as much as you want. It's between you and God. That's interesting. It doesn't have to be a religion or a nonprofit. It can be, yeah, it, it can be anything that's worthy of, of kind of a cause that's dear to your heart or the world's. Yes. Yes. Really cool. Cause I, I grew up with a, a pretty strict, you shall tithe yes. and you shall tithe to the church and yes. the church is the church you attend. I don't care if you give it to, uh, I don't know, name some the awesome nonprofit. Yeah. Right. Whoever it was. Charity yeah, water. you can you can do that, but that doesn't count as your ten percent right, tithe. Right. The 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 idea there was that the church would take care of all of those things, which I say, well, when it does, then okay, let's talk. But it's not. It doesn't. Anyway, I wish it did. Yeah, that that's one of the things that 
uh, Christianity is kind of facing, especially in the West, is that um, younger generations especially aren't giving tithe. They're giving to places where they know how their money is being used. And so that's changing up the dynamic of how we take care of our ministers and our churches and all of that. And, and usually the 10% was of your income, not of yeah. your disposable income, which mm-hmm. is kind of what, what you describe. So it's, and then it was like people would have the conversations, is it before or after tax? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And My then, parents were strictly after tax. <laughs> you know, that's your income, not your we, gross. We had ministers that would say, no, it's before tax. And you're like, oh, man, <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> oh. So I'll Good. take us on a rabbit trail for a second. Do it. Um, are your imams uh, paid? Is is I was going to ask the same thing about. Is that how a does paid the position, and how does the mosque function? Exactly. Yeah. So it's very different from country to country. Um, in some Muslim majority countries, the government um, assigns imams to mosques, and the government pays their um, salaries. Um, I can you give you an example from Turkey. The government assigns imams to mosques and the government sends the Friday sermons to them. So in all over Turkey, the government, um, they read the, go- the government's sermons. So you can see how the religion is controlled by the government. It's very dangerous. It can go into a very dangerous direction. Is that just Erdogan or is that pre? It was, it was, it was pre-Erdogan, but Erdogan is abusing it um, okay. as a political Islamists, he's abusing it. But it existed before Erdogan. Before Erdogan, the governments were more secular. And then the sermons were, um, I mean, more about nature and so on. It was not about politics. But right now, the sermons go deep into politics. Um, In other Islamic countries, it might be the same thing. Um, I, I know that in the state of Israel, so not in the West Bank, in the state of Israel, the Israeli state also um, pays the salaries of the imams, um, the, the Muslim imams. So um, that's quite interesting. Checkmate. <laughs> in in um, the United States, it's not an Islamic government, of course. Um, maybe Trump is Muslim, I don't know. <laughs> He's working on it. Yeah. We don't know what he is. <laughs> so in the United States, the, the mosques actually, they get together and um, they uh, hire an imam, and then the community pays the imam. And it's completely between the community and the imam, how much they pay, how they pay, and so on. Um, so it, it is com- community-organized, mosque-organized. And then how do they pay for the mosque? Um, is that just part of the alms, or is that something else? Um, it might be a membership fee. Oh, okay. They are paying, so it's completely up to the mosque how they organize that. Okay. So there's different committees, elders, and things like that. That so it's not just one set way of doing it. Exactly. Okay. Yes. Right. Yes. So we have the last pillar here: the pilgrimage to Mecca. Why Mecca? For those that don't know, and have you been? Um, so first of all, I haven't been, <laughs> but I I'm planning to, and I would love to go. Um, Mecca is the birthplace of Prophet Muhammad. And Mecca in Islamic tradition was um, important for the Abrahamic faith traditions before Muhammad as well. Because we believe that Abraham, when he left with his son Ishmael, um, they went together to Mecca. And they built the, the Kaaba, that black cube that you see on pictures, they built that together. And we believe that is the first place of worship 
of, of God. The, the uh, first place of um, submission to God is that place that Prophet Abraham built along with his son Ishmael. And before them, there was a religious meaning of that as well. So Prophet Muhammad lived there. The religion of Islam started in that region. That's why we have to go once in our lifetime to that um, region. And we have to go to Mecca and to the place that he passed away, to Medina. So it, we, um, there is the pilgrimage goes into two cities. And um, at the same time, our Prophet, he did that. He performed pilgrimage. He showed us the example on how to perform the pilgrimage. That's, um, and we um, follow that example. And what happens along along that long road, that journey? Is I know it's probably different for every person, and you haven't been, but from what you've been told from your family and your friends, I mean, they say it is um, very symbolical, spiritual, and humbling because you see millions of people dressed the same way, way completely white, and they're walking side by side um, together, um, only for one purpose: for the sake of God. Nothing other than that. Um, and then they go, and there is a symbolical act where you stone the Satan. Um, so you, everybody has to pick um, stones from the, the ground, and then you ha take them, and then you throw them into a direction um, where in the past, historically, the same thing happened to a prophet. And you have to do that as well, and you stone them. And scholars say, actually, it is something where you fight your ego, your carnal desires at that moment. So it is, you rebel against your carnal desires at that moment, um, and you submit yourself altogether with the entire community to God again. Is there a personal, uh, like, spiritual expectation when you do the pilgrimage? Like, is it, it kind of its own experience? Is it, do you expect to be different I can't, mm. I, we have those kind of salvation experience in Christianity. My tradition had a second experience. Mm -hmm. Is pilgrimage something that has that personal spiritual element? Yes, um, absolutely. I mean, you walk in the footsteps of the prophet, of saints, if you will, um, in that region. And um, at the same time, when you do that pilgrimage, um, there there is the aspect of um, um, you have to show that you are not arrogant. You have to be humble as a human being. For instance, um, you are not allowed to curse at all on the individual. You are not allowed to wrong somebody. If you wrong during the pilgrimage somebody, then th there is certain punishments for that. I mean, you give even more to needy people and so on. Um, so the entire journey during pilgrimage for, for the individual is full of prayers, um, late night prayers. People go in during late night and they pray. And there is, um, um, you have to walk around the cube and along with prayers again to God. Um, and people who went said the experience on the individual level is completely different. It, it is life-changing to see that place, to see the millions, to experience with them, and then on your individual level to pray in front of the grave of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. If you pray there, um, it, it is a completely different life-changing experience for them. So basically, we're not all that different. I don't think so, no. <laughs> it's a very, very, we are very similar, I guess.
One thing I wanted to ask and, and forgive me for being blunt, but it's more for our listeners that may, may not be so used to this. Um, why is it that when you, when you say prophet Muhammad, you say, peace be upon him. Yeah. We have to show respect to every prophet. If we say Jesus, we have to say peace be upon him as well. After any name of a prophet, we say peace be upon him or peace be upon them to show respect to them. It's a good segue into prophecy and prophets. I do want to come back to Ishmael, not you, but the the biblical character, uh, which will that's a rabbit trail. So if it doesn't come back, uh, I'm sorry, listeners. But we're talking about prophecy right now. So prophecy, foretelling, forthtelling. These people all throughout Scripture that if people haven't read the Bible in a while, they have some insight and some intuition, and they're talking about God's love, God's wrath. Here's what's going to happen, Israel, if you do this, and. You said there's 124,000 prophets that came to earth before Muhammad. And what was their message? Like, if you, if you could narrow that down to a, a sentence or a paragraph, not a thesis, because you said they all, all had the same message. All 124,000. Yeah. No, but it, it was a universal message, essentially. Yeah. yeah. To, in our belief, um, the message was that there is only one God, and there is a purpose of being created, um, which is to submit yourself to God, to worship God, and out of your submission to God to be a good human being, um, to be a God-loving, human-loving being, and um, to act with good morals in this life. So Moses was one of them. Yes. He's a pretty big one. Yes. What what is the thought of of Moses today amongst Muslims? He's one of the greatest prophets. Um, His name is in the Quran the most mentioned prophet's name. Um, so not Muhammad, it's Moses whose name is most mentioned in the Quran. So it's not that Moses' message or God's message through Moses was wrong, it's what happened after that. Exactly. Okay? Which is why we have in the Bible, if you read the minor prophets and major prophets, there's a lot of prophecy right there that people skip over. It's good stuff. Then you have Jesus. We're going to fast forward. What What is Jesus' role as a prophet? Mm-hmm. So, Jesus is the son of Mary, according to Islam. She was a virgin when um, she gave birth to him, and it was a miracle. His birth was a miracle, and um, he is one of the greatest prophets in Islam. And between him and Prophet Muhammad, there is no other prophets. And um, we believe that he is the Messiah, and he will return again by the end of um, the world. By the end of the time, he will return again to this world. And he is a human being, a prophet who brought the same message as Prophet Muhammad. And he actually, um, according to Islam, he allowed, for instance, the Jewish people to um, loosen or to remove some of the laws that they had before. For instance, keeping the Shabbat was um, removed with Prophet um, Jesus. Um, and the, the, the Jewish people um, had to stick to that. Right? Yeah, the, the way you, you clean hands and you pick grain on the Sabbath. Those, mm-hmm. those, so you've heard it said, it, Jesus says this a lot, but I tell you, now... Okay, you said Messiah, and when Christians or ex-Christians, we have a lot of those listeners too, hear the word Messiah, they have one thing in mind. When you, when you say Messiah, when Muslims hear Messiah, Jesus is the Messiah and he has, he's coming back a second time. What, what does that look like? What does that mean? I mean, the Messiah in terms of that his message brings salvation, that not he as a person is salvation, not the belief in him is salvation, but the message that he brought if you stick to that, if you live by the values of Jesus, then you will um, be saved, basically. Um, 
but what does that no- mean to you? <laughs> well, I I just like that means such a specific thing to the three of us. What does that mean to you? Well, yeah, I mean, but I mean, just like when you say you will be saved, you you don't pray pray a prayer asking Jesus to come into your heart and cleanse you of sin. I assume no. So what does it mean? Well, realize he said he said that it's the the message. Message. It's it's Jesus as a conduit of God's salvation. Well, but I can pull John one on you and like make them the same thing. Well, sure, but. He's not a Christian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for me, what that means is if I follow the message of Jesus, if I follow his example, um, then I pray and hope that I will go to heaven. This is um, what I learned from Jesus. And um, in Islam, just having faith is not enough to go to heaven. Um, there, your faith, your belief needs to end up in action. If your action do not reflect your faith, then something is wrong. So there is a, a, a balance or a relationship between faith and action. And just by believing in a person or in a religion may not be enough. It can be enough because it's up to God's mercy. But in general terms, uh, we have to show our faith in action. And by doing these good deeds, we hope that God will allow us to enter heaven. So what do you do with the New Testament? So specifically then, would you say the Gospels versus Paul's letters? Yes, I guess. Okay, so the New Testament. We believe that the God sent Holy Scriptures, um, the Torah, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and so on. We, will, we believe that most of it is true. But we believe that some of some parts of the New Testament or the Old Testament have been changed by human beings. And since it got changed, we cannot say that this part is right and this part, part is wrong. We can say there is most likely right parts, but we cannot say we don't know which parts are the right ones. And we believe as Muslims that the Quran is the word of God. And there's only one version of the Quran, and it is exactly the same version that um, existed during the life of, Pro- of Prophet Muhammad. So for us, it is the truth. This book is the truth. Um, the other books are holy and sacred too, but there has been cha- um, human being, humans made changes in those books. So what guards the Quran from succumbing to this? Because it's been around a long time. Yes. So we believe this is, this is one of the... Um, um, Miracles of the Quran that it got it didn't get um, changed um, by anybody. Nobody was um, nobody changed it, and we believe that God is protecting the Quran. Um, that it will not change will change in the future either. Can we fix Paul. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Typically, women have issues with Paul. But women have they have issues with Islam as well. And there was somebody the other night who who had. A, a word or two about um, your particular views and your interpretation versus his. And I don't know, do you want to talk about women in Islam for a bit? I know, Janelle, that's a, that's a important topic for you and should be for the rest of us guys. 